Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Great to be back with you. Just a reminder as you make your way to Daniel chapter 7 that you can pick up our free study guide for this lesson on returntotheword.com. Alan John Miller, a former IT specialist from Australia in his late 40s, raised some attention when it was reported by Sky News that he has been gaining quite the following because he is claiming to be Jesus Christ reincarnated. Miller claims to have memories of the crucifixion and his companion, Mary Luck. He claims that she is actually Mary Magdalene. His movement is called Divine Truth, and on his website and YouTube page, he teaches about life, God, and the universe. And after gaining large crowds in Australia, he has now taken his message worldwide, including the United States. He typically has crowds of hundreds of people at his seminars, and some are selling all of their possessions to be with him. He's been reported as saying there is probably a million people who say they are Jesus, and most of them are in asylums. But one of us has to be. He certainly isn't alone. Let me give you just a couple of more from the Hall of Shame. Puerto Rican-born Jose Miranda not only claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ, but he also claimed to be the Antichrist. He gained a worldwide movement and following. He taught his followers to get tattoos of the number 666 as the number of wisdom. He believed and taught there is no sin, no devil, no hell. In his ministry, Growing in Grace, sounds good, doesn't it? Growing in Grace, their website presents itself as, quote, the official website of the government of God on earth. In case you think this is a small fringe group, recognize that they are well organized and even have a curriculum for children. Their ministry includes 24-hour radio and satellite TV broadcasts. And in 2013, their ministry was taking in about $100,000 a month. You would tend to think that when he died a few years ago, that would have been the end of the movement, but you'd be wrong. His worldwide audience declared him to be immortal, and his most recent wife is now the head of the ministry. To be honest, it gets really confusing, but in some weird distortion of the Trinity, she's claiming to be God. She's also claiming to be Christ, and it sounds like she's claiming to be the Holy Spirit. One more out of many. Sergi Torup began proclaiming himself to be Jesus reincarnated after he was fired as a traffic cop in Russia. He went on to found the Church of the Last Testament. Yes, thousands of followers who gathered to listen to him speak. He is known as Jesus of Siberia. As you would expect, he has long hair and wears long gowns. These guys are so cliché. He often speaks on a hillside, and about 2,000 of his followers live in a settlement in Siberia, dedicated to his worship. Torup is quoted as saying, It's all very complicated, but to keep things simple, yes, I am Jesus Christ. That which has promised must come to pass, and it was promised in Israel 2,000 years ago that I would return, that I would come back to finish what was started. I am not God, and it is a mistake to see Jesus as God, but I am the living Word of God the Father. Everything that God wants to say he says through me. The Apostle John instructed, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, 
Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The text is 1 John 2.18, and that could be the theme verse of our study. Anyone opposed to the apostolic doctrines of Christ revealed in the written revelation of God's Word, anyone who has the arrogance to exalt themselves against God, this person is considered to be an Antichrist or a person opposed to Christ. John would go on to testify that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. This is the age in which we live where there are many that are opposed to God the Son, but there will be one man who will stand above the rest in his opposition of Christ, one man who will seek to counterfeit the very kingdom of Christ on earth. And we learn about him in Daniel 7. We start again with verse 19 of Daniel 7. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change the times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me... Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's get the big idea of this passage before we break these verses down. We have mentioned before that Daniel chapter 7 and 8 take place after chapter 4, but before chapter 5. Belshazzar was king. Babylon hadn't fallen yet. And according to verse 1 of chapter 7, Daniel had a dream and visions. In this vision, Daniel saw four great beasts representing four great empires. We saw last time in verse 16 that Daniel had an angel to help him understand the interpretation. This could have been Gabriel because we see him mentioned in the next couple of chapters, but now in our text, Daniel wants to know more about the fourth beast, and I would contend that much of the emphasis of this chapter is on this fourth beast. This can be seen in just the amount of ink that is spilled on the fourth beast. It dominates the chapter. And this is important because if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then we must come to the conclusion that God himself focused more here in the revelation he gave on the fourth beast, meaning God intends for us to understand some basic facts about the future. I believe God wants us to understand the prophecies written down in his word much more than most Christians want to study them. 
God revealed it to Daniel, had an angel explain it to him, inspired Daniel to write it down, and preserved his word throughout the ages for us to study it. Grasp the importance of the prophetic sections of God's word. Notice again verses 19 and 20. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. The fourth beast was different from all the others. Daniel already told us this back in verse 7. I think that factors in for understanding the intended meaning of the text. Back up to verse 7 with me and notice the wording of the verse. Again, Daniel tells us this fourth beast was different from all the others. It didn't look like anything known to man. And pay attention to the wording. It was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. Then in verse 19, Daniel says almost the same exact thing. From man's point of view, the first three empires were awesome. Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. They were powerful. They were strong. But the fourth, it could not even be compared to the other three nations. It was dreadful. It was terrible. The fourth beast crushed with unbelievable power the other nations. The only new piece of information in verse 19 that we didn't learn in verse 7 is that the nails were made of bronze. Again, pointing to the strength of this last beast. And I think verse 20 points us in the direction that Daniel wanted to know more about these ten horns that were on the head of the fourth beast and the little horn which was allowed to make war against the saints. Daniel was concerned about God's people. As you compare verse 20 with verse 8, the new piece of information is that the little horn, his appearance was greater than his fellows. Go back up in the text with me to the end of verse 7 and verse 8. In verse 8, we see this fourth beast, our fourth empire, has ten horns or ten leaders. And out of the ten horns, horns signifying leaders or kings, three of the horns fall away. In verse 8, says another horn takes their place. But notice what it says. A little horn. Again, the eyes of man here tell us that this person, also known as the Antichrist, is in the form of a man. But verse 8 says he starts out as a little horn taking the place of the three horns. Then in verse 20, the text says that his look or appearance was greater than his fellows. The Antichrist will start out with a smaller position. He will start out with not as much power, but over time his power will grow and he will be stronger than the other leaders of this fourth empire. Make your way to Revelation 17. The key to Revelation 17 is to understand that the beast of this chapter is also a reference to the world government during the tribulation. And the harlot, the woman referred to in this text, is the coming one world religion during that time. Now we're going to just grab a couple of verses before we move on, but notice verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. This is the coming apostate religious system that will kill those with faith in the true Messiah of Israel. Skip down to verse 12. Here's why I brought us here. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. 
but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And then notice the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ in verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. The Antichrist is identified with his worldwide government. These ten leaders will rule under the Antichrist. In verse 13, they are of one mind, but their rule will be brief. It will only extend through the end of the tribulation. Revelation 13 highlights the career of the Antichrist. Let's make a quick stop there. In Revelation 13, the beast is the Antichrist and his government that will rule over the world. Now, verse 1 teaches us, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Again, same teaching as Daniel. This is the revived Roman Empire. The Antichrist will have authority over this ten-nation confederacy, but at this point, only seven rulers, just as Daniel predicted. Notice in verse 2 where the Antichrist gets his power. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The dragon, Satan. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now the reference to 42 months is the last half of the tribulation, also known as the Great Tribulation. Verse 6, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Read that last part again. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Global rule worldwide. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Daniel was right to be concerned about this final kingdom. Now we'll be coming back to Revelation, but for now make your way back to Daniel. And the point that Daniel's driving home at the end of verse 20 back in our text is that even though this final horn came on the scene last and was smaller than all the rest, he becomes the last king of the restored Roman Empire when the Antichrist himself displaces three of the kings and becomes the leader of this worldwide government. Now verses 21 and 22 in Daniel move the story forward. Notice how this fits with what we just read in Revelation 17. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The eleventh horn, the Antichrist, he will make war with the saints and will overcome them or prevail against them. The saints will be persecuted. They won't be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that those who refuse to worship the beast, those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast on their hands or foreheads, they will be killed. That's the reference here in verse 21. 
The choice in that day will be much more obvious. Choose Christ or the Antichrist. And according to Revelation 12, Satan will focus at first on persecuting the nation of Israel. He will defeat them and bring them under his authority through the Antichrist. Zechariah 13 informs us that during the tribulation, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed. But once Israel scatters into the wilderness, verse 17 of Revelation 12 teaches us that Satan will be enraged with Israel. And then the text tells us Satan will go to make war with the rest of the offspring of Israel, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan will turn his attention to the rest of the tribulation saints. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. The tribulation saints will be persecuted with fierceness. They will be slaughtered for their faith in Christ. Not all of them. Matthew 25 teaches us this. But the Antichrist will prevail until what? Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came. Ancient of Days meaning God the Father. Well, we saw last time in verse 14, God the Father will give Jesus Christ the messianic kingdom. This persecution will continue until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. This is Christ coming again as we saw in chapter 2. The stone hitting the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Christ returning to battle the forces of the Antichrist and set up his kingdom. The meaning here is that Christ will return. He will judge the Antichrist and the false prophet. Revelation 19. If you still have a finger in Revelation, go ahead and turn. Otherwise, listen as I read. Revelation 19, starting with verse 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The Battle of Armageddon the Antichrist will be cast into the lake of fire, meaning he will live on in torment in the lake of fire. Verse 22 of Daniel ends with a simple statement that the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Turn this time to Matthew 25. The text of Matthew 25 speaks directly to the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Ezekiel 37 also does this. You may want to jot that one down because starting in verse 21 of Ezekiel 37, it talks about Christ bringing the Hebrew people back into their land as the Lord establishes his kingdom. But for now, Matthew 25, take a look at verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, the context teaches us that this can only refer to the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the judgment of church-age saints. The church age ends at the rapture. This is not the great white throne judgment where unbelievers from all the ages are sentenced to everlasting torment. This is the sheep and goat judgment at the end of the tribulation. 
Christ will separate the tribulation saints that are still alive from the lost. This judgment separates those who will live on after the tribulation in the kingdom during the millennium. Every person alive after the tribulation will be judged. The sheep are the tribulation saints, those with faith in Christ. The goats are the unredeemed. Notice the words to the saints, starting in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Listen carefully, because these verses are usually taken out of context. The brethren of the Lord in verse 40 are the Jews during the tribulation. This text is not speaking directly to our day. There are applications we can make, but this is not a direct teaching about the church age. During the tribulation, any Jewish person with faith in the Messiah is going to be fleeing for their lives. Food, clothes, something to drink, these will be real problems. During the tribulation, salvation will be by faith, just as it is now. But the simple point of the text is that during the tribulation, especially the second half, the only person that is going to help a Jewish believer in the Messiah when helping them will mean risking your own death is a Gentile who has also come to faith in the Messiah. This isn't about works-based salvation. This is about Jew and Gentile believers during that time ministering to one another and standing for Christ. Making that choice to stand for Christ means you will have already identified yourself with him by faith. But look at the other side of things, starting in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison." and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Remember what we said before, during the tribulation, the choice for men and women will be obvious. A person will either choose to follow the Antichrist, taking the mark of the beast, or they will reject the Antichrist because of their faith in Jesus Christ. This judgment in Matthew 25 will be the result of those choices. Make your way back to Daniel. Starting in verse 23, the angel explains a little more to Daniel. For the sake of time, we're just going to pick out the new information in these verses that wasn't already given to us before in the first part of the chapter. In verse 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. This means, listen carefully, a kingdom on earth. It has to be a political entity just like the others, and it has to have a military component, devouring the earth and trampling it to pieces, but still different from the others. 
I think there are at least two main ways this fourth kingdom is different from the others. First, remember what we saw back in chapter 2. The fourth kingdom would be in existence in some form until it was destroyed by Christ. It is a future extension of the Roman Empire. And secondly, this kingdom will devour the whole earth. Now, let's be careful here. Verse 23 says it will cover the whole earth, but the Old Testament used the term here to refer to the land around Israel. The picture actually given is of the Roman state devouring the surrounding nations bite by bite. So will the kingdom of the Antichrist rule the entire earth? Yes, Revelation 13 teaches us this, but you can't get there from here. It's true, you just can't prove it from this verse. Now, the Roman Empire was large. It controlled most of the known world at its time. It crushed her enemies, just as the Word of God predicted, but it never controlled the entire world. Some believe that when the Roman Empire is reconstituted in its final form, it will have the same boundaries as before. But the problem is that Revelation 13 teaches us that the Antichrist will have authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that everyone in the whole earth will worship him. Certainly, the European Union may be a large part of it, but it will be global, the whole earth. Remember, Satan is the master counterfeit. He knows Christ will rule over the entire world, and he will want to mimic the worldwide rule of Christ. In other words, watch out for groups like the UN. Now, most of the ground in verses 24 and 25 we've already covered. This 10-nation confederation of verse 24, there's nothing in history that has matched this. And so we know that the fulfillment must still be in the future. This one world government will have 10 initial districts or regions of control, led by 10 leaders. The Antichrist will subdue three of the kings. But remember what we saw a little bit ago in Revelation 17, verse 13. Even for the seven remaining kings, they will support with their power and authority the reign of the Antichrist. According to verse 25, the Antichrist will speak pompous words against the Most High. He will oppose God and will persecute or wear out the saints. This would be what we looked at earlier in Revelation, that anyone that doesn't worship him or receive a mark on his hand or head will be put to death. The latter half of verse 25 can be a little confusing for some, where it says the Antichrist will intend to change times and the law. In his efforts to have mankind worship him, he will change the times, the traditions that worship God. Some think that he'll try to change the times of the feast days of Israel, just as was tried in 1 Kings 12. Any observance that is connected with the worship of the one true God. Some think that he might have in mind trying to change the seven-day weeks to a ten-day week. Keep in mind that the seven-day week is what God created for man back in Genesis. This was tried back in the French Revolution, and this is probably the type of thing that the Antichrist will try. Maybe he will attempt to change the calendar as we know it. But notice verse 25 says he will intend to do it. He may not actually succeed at changing those things. He will abandon the laws and create his own system. And then Daniel says the saint shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. From chapter 4, verses 16 and 23, we know that a reference to a time is one year. Times is the plural of time, which means two years, and a half a time is a half a year. So if you add them all up, we come up with a period of three and a half years. Revelation 11:2 talks about this period and says it will be for 42 months. 
Revelation 12.6 says it will be for 1,260 days. You can do the math on your own. These all add up to a period of three and a half years. The tribulation period is a total of seven years. We'll see when we get to chapter 9 something called the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist goes into the temple of the Jews. He shuts down their offerings and sacrifices, and at this time starts to demand to be worshipped. This happens midway through the tribulation period. The last three and a half years being spoken of in verse 25 refer to the last half of the tribulation period where the persecution intensifies, especially for the nation of Israel. Persecution of the Jews will be the initial focus of the Antichrist during this period. Jesus warned in Matthew 24:21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Christ referred to this time as the Great Tribulation. The false prophet will form an alliance with the Antichrist. The Antichrist will rule the world politically from Jerusalem. The Antichrist will be a political ruler. And the false prophet will be a religious leader who will make people worship the Antichrist. Now, the Lord Jesus ministered on earth for three and a half years, and the Antichrist will be allowed to carry out his satanic ministry for the same length of time. Verse 26 in Daniel refers to the court of God. We saw this back in verses 9 and 10. The Antichrist's power and dominion will be taken away from him. He will be cast into the lake of fire. Then at that time, according to verse 27, Christ will usher in his eternal kingdom, which will begin a 1,000-year reign on earth, with all nations and people serving him. Verse 28 leaves us with a very troubled Daniel. Notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 28. This is the end of the account. Follow the flow of thought. The angel was speaking from verse 23 and on. And so the phrase here, this is the end of the account, this could be the last word spoken by the angel, or it could be the words of Daniel. Daniel reports that his countenance changed. Another way of saying this would be to say that his face grew pale. He kept the matter in his heart. He didn't drop it. He kept thinking about it and reflecting back on what he had seen. Hong Shi Quan, a name that means nothing to most of us, but a name that is permanently engraved into the culture and history of China. After coming into some contact with missionaries, Hong was struck by sudden illness in 1837, was unconscious for about four days, and during that time he was in a coma. He supposedly had a vision that revealed to him he was the younger brother of Jesus and that during this time he was in a coma, he'd been taken up to heaven to see him. For 10 years, Hong was a street preacher, and he was a part of starting the Society of God Worshippers. With time, Hong created his own version of the Christian faith. He agreed that God was the maker of the universe, but he never accepted Jesus as deity. As Hong continued to have more visions, he claimed to be the Son of God who was sent to reform China. You have to understand, the people that followed him, these people thought they were the chosen people of their God with a mission to overthrow the wicked government in place in China. And they believed that they were a part of the kingdom of God. God was on their side. The movement became popular with the common people because their belief was that you shared property. It essentially was a form of communism. This attracted the peasants who were dealing with a famine. This attracted the miners and the poor, and they went from several thousand to having an army of more than one million well-trained and disciplined soldiers. The rebellion against the government started in 1850. By 1851, Hong had proclaimed his new dynasty was the heavenly kingdom of great peace, and he assumed the title 
heavenly king. At their peak, this rebellion took over about half of China. It turned into a bloody civil war, and it took until 1864, 14 years for the Chinese to regain control over most of the country. It turned into one of the bloodiest wars this world has ever seen, costing at least 20 million lives. History is filled with men like this, men who claim to be God, men who claim to be the Christ, because Satan has a lot of substitutes. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. The day is coming when the ultimate substitute will be offered up by Satan, a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit king, but there is one eternal king who is destined to rule over the redeemed. The false messiahs must be removed so that the authentic could take his rightful place. Look to that day. Look to the blessed hope we have in Christ. Look to the day when our redemption is complete in him, knowing that God has a perfect plan for this world. And the day will come when Christ will rule with perfect peace, perfect justice. Righteousness will reign on the face of the earth and God's people will be with the Lord forevermore. Be thankful for the promise of Colossians 3, 4, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.